Thank you so much for having us. And that was just such a lovely surprise. A little yeah. hello from home. Very cool. There are a few people here, obviously family, Debs and the family that are here and Jillian Mack and the Arnolds, you all babysat that lovely young lady when she was just a little itty-bitty. But thank you for having us, Stan and Heather and the eldership. It really is such an honor and privilege for us to, to be here. We, we really are honored to, to be with you this morning. Northland's Church is praying for you. They're excited to have us here, and they're very much with us in spirit. I do have a word for you. I've been praying for you as a church, but I don't know if, is it Longelo? I just asked Jan. Long, where, where? Longella. Longella. I don't know if she's in the building, but uh, there we go. I just felt like there's such an anointing on you to catch the wave of the Spirit in worship, and just want to encourage you with that. I think there's some prophetic song that needs to come from you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I've been praying for you as as a church for a couple of weeks and I do always submit this word to you as a, as a leadership but I felt like the Lord said that just as you've cre created beautiful spaces in the natural for people to meet you've also been called to create spaces in the spirit for people to connect, for the bride to connect with me, to hear my voice to feel my presence and to find healing I feel like the Lord says that I've called you, Glenridge, to be a place where many can come and drink from a pure stream of my love and grace. Over the years, the enemy has tried to buffet you and even limit your movement and message. But I feel like the Lord says, I have called you to deliver freedom, and the fruit of that is all around you. And then I saw a picture of just a frame being enlarged, and I believe the Lord says that the frame around you is being enlarged because he's giving you more ground in the spirit. But I, I think it might also be more ground in, in the spirit, in, in the natural. I don't know if there's any building projects coming up, but I feel like there's supernatural provision for you. Okay, maybe there is. <laughs> um, I feel like the Lord says there's supernatural provision for you for building because there's more to be built. He says, be encouraged by the life flowing through you because there's more. There are deeper places for you. There are wider spaces I'm going to lead you into. I believe that's in the things of the spirit, but also in the natural. Your humility and love for one another as leaders makes a way for you. And then to stand in Heather, I just feel like the Lord says, well done to you. Um, he commends you for the way that you've led. And I always have just a heart for leaders because I know that you carry a weight that not everybody does. But I, I believe he says that you've led so well in these last two years. And I saw you both holding the, the wheel of a boat, being tossed back and forth. But you refused to let go. And the Lord says his faithfulness and, his, and your love for your people is just is to be commended. You are true attendants of the bride. And he says to you, well done. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. 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 You are, you are led by an outstanding couple, Glenridge. And to the elders of the church, I feel like the Lord says, this, the, the encouragement from the Lord to you is to guard the unity among you. You have stood well in front of your people to lead and protect because you stand united. And the unity that you have makes a way for expansion and depth in the spirit. In the next season, guard and treasure the unity you have as a team 
because the Lord says the strength of this team is both a safeguard and a foundation as you catch the wind of the Spirit as, and as you take the church into deeper waters, into a season of greater freedom, more miracles, more salvation, and many testimonies. So I just feel like there's a, just, a, just a commendation and encouragement, the unity that you have. You know, when you have a strong team of leaders, you have different perspectives, but you've guarded the unity, and I feel like that's foundational for the next season that God's taking you into, and it's a beautiful thing. So I would love to pray for you as a church. Father, I just thank you for this, this body, Lord. Thank you for this church that you've called as, for such a time as this to make an impact in the city. Father, I just thank you, Lord, and I release them into greater spaces, Lord, in the spirit and in the natural. Thank you, Father, that there's, there's um, physical ground, Lord, that you have planned for them, Lord, that you are preparing for them. I thank you for the provision, Father, that's stored up for this, the, these spaces, Lord. But I thank you for a move in the spirit, Lord. We just call in salvations. Father, we call this a house of miracles. Lord, I thank you for that you are enlarging the territory beneath their feet, Lord. So, Lord, I bless this church. Father, I speak your favor. Lord, I declare the favor of God over this church and over this leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. Thanks, man. Praise God. Yeah. So nice to be here. We are traveling uh, now. We're doing a couple of conferences here in South Africa. We go to Uganda next, and we have a conference there with... About 800 pastors are coming together. We said um, only one pastor from each church. So we have 800 unique churches coming and then another 2,000 have been invited on Zoom link. So it's going to be the first time we're trying that uh, both live and in, uh, digitally. So it's going to be a party. And so I have three COVID tests between now and when I get back here. So that's why I'm wearing a mask all the time. It's got nothing to do with you. I don't think you're sick. I just need to come back from Uganda, so that's where we are. It's really good to be with you guys. When I spoke to Stan a few months back and I said, he said, would you come and minister? I said, I'd love to. Is there anything you'd like me to minister on? And he said, well, you, a little while back I'd preached, uh, I'd mentioned Pulling the King's Carriage. It was, a, it was a book I'd written and it's in the process of being published. But he said, well, maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. So uh, the message today is called Pulling the King's Carriage. And it really comes from a... Uh, an idea from a sermon I heard many, many years, like 30 years ago, about this concept of uh, horses in Europe that are trained, uh, this particular breed of horse that is trained to pull the carriages of royalty and to usher in the presence of the king. And it's a particular thoroughbred, but uh, being a thoroughbred of that breed is not enough. The horses are put into a strict and rigid training session in order to be the kind of horse that has the right temperament to be able to pull a king's carriage. And fundamentally, there are about three major lessons the horse needs to learn. It, it needs to learn how uh, to carry itself like a, a horse that is ushering in royalty. It, it, it gets trained to arch its neck. It has to run in a specific way. It gets put in traces and taught how to run regally. And, um, and so the horses are put in training and they're put in halters and they're put in... Uh, 
particular way to train and the horses that will not go um, along with the training, that kick against the traces, that consistently fight against the trainers, they'll try and try and try and after a little while they just release the horse from the traces and put it out into the king's paddock which is a great place to be. It's happy green grass, apples every day, nice place to stay but they never get the privilege of ushering in the presence of the king. Because if you want to be somebody who brings the presence of the king into your generation, then you have to go through some training because your pedigree, your birthright is not enough. Amen. That's very interesting, Greg. I just felt like there should be some feedback. David encouraged himself in the Lord, the Bible says. So you can say amen. You can say nah. Or you could say, oh my. Or best yet, the best comment I ever had was somebody at the back of one service said, moi man. Right. Now, here's the truth. Um, Horses, uh, if you're going to pull the king's carriage, you have to undergo training. And if you refuse the training, you don't get the privilege. So being somebody who's born again is a beautiful thing because you have become brand new. The scripture says everything that happened when you came to faith, when you believed in Jesus Christ, a whole bunch of supernatural things instantly happened to you. You were crucified with Christ because you were included in Christ. Corinthians 12 says, by one spirit, you were baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit took you when you believed. He took you and submerged you into Christ. So now, therefore, everything that happened to Christ happened to you. If I take a page of a book, I put it in a Bible. I mean, take a page, I put it in a Bible. Now it's in the Bible. If I throw the Bible in fire, what happened to the page? If I throw it into water, what happened to the page? If I leave it on the shelf, what happened to the page? If you're in Christ, everything that happened to Christ is ceded to you. It's given to you. It's put on your life because you believed. So the Bible says that, that you were included in Christ when he, in his death. You died with Christ. You were buried with Christ in baptism. You were raised with Christ in resurrection. You were seated with Christ in heavenly places. You were filled in Christ by the Spirit of God. You were blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You were given all authority in heaven and earth so that in his name you can go and proclaim this gospel. All right, And that's all in the aorist tense. It's a past tense in the Greek. This is not something you have to work for. This happened to you instantaneously when you believed. All right? Yeah. So, so one, one of the things that we have to learn is we have to learn to step into this identity and work that out in our lives. Now, God is passionate about teaching you how to win as parents we understand this anybody who's a parent here we live with this tension we want to protect our children from life danger and pain but at the same time we want our children to learn how to overcome and be winners and if you do too much of the one they'll never accomplish the other and so at some stage you figure this out usually by the second or third child, you know, I'm just, you know, that third child is a winner, boy, because it has to be. So you, you go this, at some stage you, you go, well, you're going to have to face this one. I can't protect you from this. You have to face it because I, I, I 
I'm proud when my kids stand on their own two feet, win their own battles, go through tough times, endure dark nights, and come out victorious. So the pain of watching our children struggle is eclipsed by the joy of watching them overcome. And when they overcome, what happens internally to them is that they, a confidence begins to spring up inside of them because for years you've been telling them, you can do this, but when they actually do it, something comes into agreement in them and a confidence arises in them and they go, actually, we can do this. So we, we understand this intuitively as parents and when they've strived and then they've overcome, we just, we just find great delight in that. Now, God the Father has exactly this idea, and it's borne out in the scriptures. He has these two desires in perfect balance. He is irrevocably committed to protecting you. And at the same time, he's committed to calling you and teaching you to overcome. So when God's calling you to overcome, the problem is that this world and the theology that springs up from people who don't know God is that the moment tough times come, people go, oh, it's because of God hates you. It's because of that sin in your life. You were exposed to your uncle's great card trick or whatever it is, right? There's always a reason because the moment tough times come, people misunderstand the tough times. And automatically, almost automatically, we always ascribe meanness to God. We don't ascribe greatness to God, which is what the Bible says you should do. We ascribe meanness to God. He hates me. It's because of that weakness in my life. It's because of that sin I committed. God wants to give you the gift of personal victory. So the call of God is going to be ever deeper, moving you closer to his picture of Jesus, and he's going to call you this constant whisper from the Holy Spirit. There's more for you in God. Now, just like if you want to pull the king's carriage, if you refuse the training or don't do well in the training, you eventually will be put into the king's paddock. It's a great life. You'll have happy days, but you never get to bear the presence of the king into your generation. And I want to be one of those people who ushers in the presence of my king. But that's going to cost you. So I want to raise uh, just a few, a few ideas. We'll see how far we can get in this message because it's a bit long, but just a few concepts that I want you to get. And if you get the concepts, then I think we've, we've done well today. Number one, God's dream for us governs his dealings with us. God has a dream for you. Uh, there's a whole bunch of scriptures. We could, uh, Psalm 40, how, how precious concerning me are your thoughts, O Lord. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. God has more thoughts about you than there are grains of sand, the Bible says. How precious about me. There is a giant of a God in you and he dreams great dreams for you. God is dreaming about you and it's that dream that God has for you that governs his dealings with you. So when he formed you together, put you together in your mother's womb, which Psalm 139 says, he, 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 your eyes saw my unformed body when you knit me together in my mother's womb and God called you to something out here. And so in your mother's womb, he began to build into you what was necessary the raw ingredients to help you get to where his dream is for you. Do you understand? And God is irrevocably committed to his dream for your life because the gifting and the callings of God are irrevocable. He never backs away from it. 
So God, in before you were even conscious, built into you strengths and abilities and, and, and a personality because he goes, this is precisely what I need for you to accomplish this dream that I have for your life. Now between there and there, your choice comes to play and there's ups and downs, but God never backs off his dream for you and so God always works with you in line with his calling. My granddaughter's five. That girl is designed for leadership. It's in her. And it comes out, she's still young, so she has no desire to follow. Right? No desire to follow. Hey, let's go here. No, I'm going to go here. Let's, this is better. I said to her the other night, hey, we're playing. I said, hey, we're going to go down. Here's the plan. We'll leave the toys here. We'll go down. We'll have dinner. When we finish dinner, we'll come back up and we'll carry on playing. She says, that's not a plan. This is the plan. You go down and have dinner, and I'll stay here and play. She says, now that's a plan. What's going on here? Well, there's leadership in her. Now, it's an immature expression of leadership, but God has built it into her. Now, the dealings of God with her, see, now I could say, such a rebellious child, I'm going to break that. I'm going to beat that out of her. Do you understand? Which is what a lot of theologians would say. Beat that out of her. I go, no, no, no. I recognize God has built something into this child and his dream for her includes leadership. And so what I'm going to have to do, because the dealings of God with this child are going to be in line with the dream that he has. And the dealings of God in your life are in line with his dream. It's the dream of God, not the, not the, not the disdain of God. See, if I could just get you to catch this, your life would be better. So many people think that God's dealings are because of his disdain. Okay. God is committed to working in you what is necessary to, to achieve his work through you. So he's going to work in you discipline. He's going to work in you character. He's going to work in you perseverance. Because if you want to get up here, you need to be sustained by that much character. And you need to be sustained by that much gifting. And you need to be grown into this thing. And so God starts you here and he goes, I'm taking you there. And so he knows that in order to live there, you have to have that much perseverance. And the way that perseverance comes into your life, you know how that works? The testing of your faith develops perseverance, which must finish its work in you so you can be mature and complete and not lacking anything. And so God's dream for you is to live up here. And he goes, Woo, I'm going to help you get there. And next thing you know, there's just pressure on every side. God hates me. No, his dream for you means that you have to go through. You have to learn how to overcome. This looks like it's for about four people. <laughs> Psalm 138, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me, David said. God is committed to his purpose on my life, and God is committed to his purpose of your life. And whether you failed or not, whether you've sinned or not, whether you've fallen short or not, did not change God's dream for your life. His dream for your life is irrevocable. He doesn't move it. And so it's not about the current resources or the current circumstances or the current ability of your heart. It's about God's dream for you, and God never backs off his dream. 
And even though I may stray or lose heart or get dirty or fail or be faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. He believes in you and you were created for glory. So his faithfulness requires him to be committed to your development until the time where you say no more. Then he'll release you from the traces, put you in a paddock, and you can roam free. And that's, that's death to me. His excitement about his dream for your life is what governs his dealings with you. Don't forget that. <laughs> Number two, God's delight in you governs his discipline of you. By the way, his discipline is always for your good. This is what Proverbs 3 says. The Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son that he delights in. Don't miss that. God disciplines those he loves like the father, the son he delights in. Come here, come here. Oh, buddy, we don't do that in my family. People say, well, God disciplines us. Well, yeah, God disciplines us like the son, like the child he delights in. How do you discipline the child you found great delight in? And why do you discipline him? I remember I was about four years old and somebody came to our door and they were, they were hungry. And, and, and my, I remember my parents made a meal and some stuff and gave it to him. And he was walking out of our driveway. And I was four and I don't know what I was doing, but I ran behind him and kick him or something and my father rebuked me son come here grabbed me held me he said what happens if that man had turned around he said you that's not what we do as a family boy that's not who we are i still remember i still feel his arms around me i still feel the rebuke that's not who we are son we don't do that to people who come to our door God disciplines us because he delights in us. And the way he disciplines us, so, so the delight of God is what determines his discipline of you. This is what Hebrews 12 says. You've completely forgotten this word of encouragement. It's a word of encouragement that addresses you as children. As a father addresses his son, my son, do not make light of the Lord's disciplines. So there are two edges to avoid in this idea. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart. To make light of the Lord's discipline, ah, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't really care about my life. And make light of the disciplines of God. No, embrace the disciplines of God. But he said, don't lose heart if God disciplines you. Don't go, oh, God hates me. Ah, it's all over for me. Don't lose heart. Because God is delighting in you. And everybody that God delights in, he disciplines. Buddy, yeah, that didn't represent me well. That's not how we do it in our family. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a while because as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. God does not discipline you for your bad. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. 
but it will yield a harvest of righteousness, the scripture says, for those who have been trained by it. Not everybody gets trained by the disciplines of God because they misunderstand the process of what God's doing. So I know God to be holy, good, and kind, and gracious, and abounding in love, but I also know that everybody he wants to use, he will enroll in a process of training. You are enrolled, whether you know it or not, in a process of development and training by God that will of necessity encompass real struggle and real joy and absolute pain and deep satisfaction and real pressure. It's not because he hates you. It's precisely because he's committed to you and delights in you. Amen. Because of this, you're going to face some tests. Because God is going to teach you a lesson. Then he's going to have you a pop quiz. Yeah, how many of you like that? You go to school and they go, teacher, all right, we're not teaching lesson today. Everybody take out your pens. We're going to do a quiz. Test. These tests are not because God doesn't know the answers. He puts tests to you so that <laughs> they can be markers of your progress and reminders of his love. So the tests of God are markers of your progress so that you know and they're reminders of his love. Because he only does this to people he loves. You've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Thessalonians, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, comma, who tests our hearts. Here's the God who tests hearts. So the process then of development is God is going to teach you a lesson, and then he's going to give you an opportunity to put that lesson into practice. This is only cool if you didn't learn the lesson. If you learn the lesson, then it's very cool because, he, so, Isaiah 30, every stroke that the Lord lays on the back of the enemy will be to the tune of the timbrel and the harp and the melody of the saints. God likes to beat the enemy up to the soundtrack of your praises, right? That's what it says. So, so, so the enemy comes against you. What do you need to start doing? Start just worshiping the Lord. Why? Because God says, thank you. I needed some rhythm. Yeah, business whack, whack. Every stroke the, laid, the Lord lays on his back will be to the sound of your praise. And then you go, oh, 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 oh. And then you turn and you see the, uh, the, uh, the, the disciples, uh, Paul and Barnabas, in jail in, in Philippi. And it's midnight and they've been beaten and they're in stocks in the stinky place in the middle of the prison and it's midnight. And they've been whipped. And they're praising God. And the whole place shakes. And everybody's chains fall off. And the whole prison is, is liberated. And then you read Jehoshaphat's story where he's completely outnumbered. So he puts the musicians in front. Judah goes out and prays. And they thank the Lord on the way to the battle. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And by the time they get there, the Lord has slapped the enemy. So you... you, you how about, how, about, how about Psalm 50? He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me and prepares the way so that I can show him my salvation. 
So the Lord teaches you. You go, whoo. I know what to do. When the enemy comes against me, I'm just going to start praising and thanking God. And we're dancing on Sunday. And then Monday morning, just enemy everywhere you look. God, what happened? Because pop quiz. Right? God hates me. It's because of that sin in my life. No, it's because his dream for you is he wants to give you the gift of personal victory to him who overcomes. Everywhere in the book of Revelation, to him who overcomes, I'll give you this treasure. I'll give you that honor. I'll give you that place next to me. So he teaches you the lesson. On Sunday, it's dancing. On Monday, it's weeping. Because, not because he hates you, but because he's saying, hey, 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 remember? Praise me a little. But Lord, my feet are in stocks. My boss is being mean. Circumstances are horrible. Yeah. I showed you yesterday how to break this. Did you hear the sermon? Did you get the message? Good. Here's the test. There's three basic lessons that I think we need to learn. I'm going to go through them. Um, Basic lesson number one is to embrace your identity. You have to step into who you are in Christ. You have to embrace that. It's not enough just for you to know who you are in Christ. It's also imperative that you know who you are in his kingdom. (laughs) The second lesson you need to learn is the lesson of listening to only one voice. Because there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of opinions out there. There's a lot of people who would love to have you lend them your ears. The enemy, your enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion and is desperately eager for you to give him your ears so that he can define you. He would love the privilege. Do not give it to him. And thirdly, there's a lesson that we have to learn of working in team. Lesson of identity, the lesson of listening to one voice and the lesson of working in a team. So let me just talk briefly through each of those lessons and then we'll play with one of the tests that comes with the lesson and then we'll see what the Lord wants to do. Embracing the lesson of identity, the the test of obscurity, basically the, the horse is taken into training and is given various opportunities. Because he's at the king's stable, a lot of visitors come and some of the horses are taken and put on display, show ponies, and kids come and admire them and take their photograph. And this, our, our hero horse is put out there for a week and everybody's taking his photo and he's learning various poses and he's loving it because he's just getting accolades and people are going, oh, so beautiful, so amazing, so gifted, so wise. And you sip at that, that's 98% proof alcohol. You just sip at that praise. A crucible is for silver and a furnace is for gold, Proverbs says, but a man will be tested by the praise he receives. Oh, it goes down so deeply. And after a week, that horse is just ready to pose at the drop of a hat for anybody who's walking by. <laughs> because he's learned how to bear himself. He's learned how to, how to pose. And then the, the next week, they take him off that duty and they put him on the menial, go help muck out the stalls and, and, and he's, he's knee deep in mud and it's not great. Now nobody's cheering, everybody's running when they see him. 
If I need to step into the identity that Jesus has for me, I need to learn to throw off what used to belong to my old identity and I need to embrace deliberately, put on what is mine in Christ Jesus. Paul says, surely, surely they taught you this, to put off the old and to be made new in the spirit of your mind and to embrace the new. Surely this was lesson number one. Somebody taught you how to step into your new identity because you cannot walk into a kingdom destiny with a worldly identity. What you, believe about, what you believe to be the truth about your being will affect the way of your being. If you believe that you're a reprobate sinner who's devoid of any authority or power to do anything, your way will reflect that. If you believe, as the scripture calls you, that you are a blood-washed saint, redeemed, restored, ransomed, healed, brought very close to God, indwelt by his Holy Spirit, in vital relationship with Jesus, then your way reflects what you believe. Your identity and what you believe about your identity has everything to do with the way you end up living your life. The truth of your being will affect the way of your being. So you have to get involved with the scriptures to find out what the Bible says about your identity. So Greg, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and in the church in Corinth, there is a man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. People are going off to prostitutes and engaging. People are getting drunk at the communion table. People are having lawsuits among themselves. It is not going well in the church. And Paul writes to them and he says, to the holy people of God in Corinth. Okay, are well, you writing to the right people, Paul? See, he didn't change the definition of the church because the behavior of the church was substandard. He kept the definition of the church. And then he says, he says this to the uh, Galatians. He says this to Colossians. He says, listen, in Ephesians, he says, listen, let there be no coarse joking or foolish talk or suggestive language among you because these are improper for God's holy people, which is what you are. Stop the smutty jokes, he says, because you are God's people. Just because there's nonsense going on doesn't change the definition. So we have to learn to walk in the identity that Jesus calls us. And Jesus has set you aside to be something that is for sacred use. The body is not made for sexual immorality, but made for the Lord. Your body was created to be indwelt by the Spirit of the living God so that you can walk out into the earth and see the kingdom of God made manifest. Now, if you don't understand that, if you don't step into that identity, you won't walk in it. So you have to figure out your identity in Christ, and this is why you have to learn the lessons of identity. Because the enemy would love to say, you, you know, that's not who you are. No, 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 you, you're not a saint. You, you're not loved by God. No, 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 no. You, you, you've got a long way to go. It's not your love for God that's holding you in place. It's his love for you. This, this is what John says. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be our sacrifice of atonement. This is love. Peter. Jesus said, you're all going to deny me. He said, point of order, Mr. Chairman. Can I just say this? This lot, they might all deny you. But me, never going to happen. Jesus said, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. 
Peter thought it was dependent on his love for Jesus. Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? When Jesus reinstates him, he teases Peter. He goes, Peter, do you love me more than these? Like he said before. It's not about how much you love God, it's about how much he loves you. He's irrevocably committed to you in Christ. When you step into that identity, you find a peace. Because it's what Romans 5 says. Since I have been justified by Christ Jesus, I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. I currently have peace. I'm not striving. I'm not fighting. I'm not working. I have peace. Why? Because he did the work and I believed. There is therefore, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. Zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember David? Oh, we're going to move on. Remember David? <laughs> he comes down to the battle, there's Goliath, and, he, and Goliath irritates David. He goes, I, I'll go slap this guy. Everyone's running away. But they're talking about what's, they're all trying to encourage one another. Let's find a champion. So they go, you know what's going to happen to the guy who kills Goliath? His family will be exempted from taxes for life. Uh, he'll be made a general in the army, and he gets to marry the king's daughter. So David, his brother comes up and he's asking, what happens to the guy who killed? Because he's already decided, I'm going to go slap this guy. And they say, no, you're going to marry the king's daughter. And, and so he does. He goes and kills Goliath. And he comes back and they go, here she is. And he goes, yeah, I, I can't do that. I'm just a shepherd boy. I'm just a shepherd boy. That's the king's daughter. I can't be a general. And then... And so they give it to somebody else. And, then, and a few years go by, and David's sitting at the king's table. He's the general now in the army. And so he's sitting next to Saul, and he sees how court life works, and he's had success. And, and then the next daughter comes along, time for marriage, and they say, would you like her? And he goes, yeah, I think I can do that. What changed? David, David had been told by the prophet years before, you're going to be the king. To marry the king's daughter was appropriate for his station, but he couldn't accept the identity that God had given him, so it took him a little while to step into the identity. And then years later, the Bible says David is made king, and he's built himself a palace, and he's standing in the palace that he built in Jerusalem. And then the Bible says something funny. And then David perceived that he was king. Hey! I'm the king! Years after he was anointed, years after he was made king, he's built a palace. And then it clicks. This is who I am. Some of you are sitting here, and it's time for it to click. You're beloved of God. You're a child of God. You've been brought very near. You have to throw off what belonged to your old. You have to put on the new. You have to embrace it. Colossians 1, 2 says, now, now he has, past tense, reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you now, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. I didn't write that. Some people think I make this up. That's what the Bible says about you now. No, that's not true. But now... I'm, I'm reading. He has reconciled you 
He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Now, if you just believe that little piece and just put that on, try that little on and step into a time of prayer. I'm holy in God's sight, free from accusation, without blemish. Not because of anything I did, all because of what he did. I'm not arrogant. I'm not cocky. I'm just going, Lord, I like this jacket you gave me. Thank you for this beauty. If you embrace who you are in Christ, it'll explode peace and joy into your life. You have to learn the lesson of identity. And in order to get you to the lesson of identity, God's going to give you some tests to prove it to you. If you are there, you will embrace the identity and you'll pass the test and you'll love it because you'll put it into practice. And it'll become cemented as part of who you are. One of the tests, there's various, there's too many tests to go through that the Lord puts you through to help you gain your identity. One of the tests he put me through was the test of obscurity. Puts you in obscurity and nobody's calling. Nobody wants to know you. Nobody's interested in you. Uh, we, we, we'd had 15 years of unbroken success in ministry. Everything we touched, the Lord breathed life on. Everything exploded. Everything we touched worked. And then he said, I want you to come here to this church. And we're the slowest growing church we've ever been part of. Nobody knew our names. Nobody cared to know us. We had the funny accent. The phone wasn't ringing. When we called people, they didn't answer. It was one of those. And it went on for years, 15 years of obscurity. And I learned something in the season of obscurity that selfish ambition goes to die in, self, in, in, in obscurity. Selfish ambition not only dies, but it rots, the bones get dry and brittle, then they fade away. Fifteen years into obscurity, I came to a place internally in my own heart, and I said, Lord, if you ever use me again, that's entirely up to you. That's, that's your prerogative, because I exist for your good pleasure. You don't exist for mine. Whatever you want, Lord. What a place of freedom. What a place of freedom. It's like Paul said, I'm not trying to win the approval of men. If I was still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. So you have to go through the test of obscurity. You have to learn. It doesn't matter whether people like me or not. It doesn't matter whether I'm famous or not. Because I've been famous and I've been the opposite of whatever famous is. Unknown. And in that moment... Of learning to navigate those two, I learned to cling to my identity in Him and build my relationship with Him. And once that is cemented, the rest doesn't count. I care very little, Paul said, if I'm judged by you or any other human court. I don't even judge myself. God's the one who judges. The only way you get there is you take the test of obscurity. Some of you are in the test of obscurity and you're kicking against the traces. Now take me, Lord, to the islands. Put me in the spotlight. I'm ready for the big stage. No, you're not. Am I preaching to anyone? Learn the lesson of listening to his voice. So it gives you the test of audience. Oh. The horse who's pulling the king's carriage has, has got to learn not to respond to the crowd. 
He's got to learn not to respond even to many handlers. He's got to learn not to f- respond to the flashes of the, of the, or the, the TV cameras or, or the way people are screaming down the road. If you're going to pull the king's carriage, you have to learn to listen to one voice alone, and that's to the one who's leading you. You listen to the voice of the king. Stop. Boom. And the whole crowd is saying, go, go, go. But you listen to one voice. And that is not as easy as it sounds. But if you're going to learn, if you're going to be somebody who ushers in the presence of the king, you have to do what the king says. Right? Jesus said, he's standing in the garden of Gethsemane. He says to the disciples, listen, guys, this is the deal. The prince of darkness is now coming. But he has no hold on me. There's nothing in me that he controls. There's nothing that he can, he's got mastery over me. I am in complete mastery over him. He's coming and he wants to arrest me. And so Jesus said, the world must learn. I love my father and I do whatever he tells me to do. So I'm going to hand myself over to the prince of darkness. He doesn't have any hold on me. But my father needs me to go and die for you. So I'm going to hand myself over. So they come, clubs and stuff. And they go, and Jesus goes out to them. And he says, what are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And the power of God hits them all to the ground. That's what the Bible says. Boom. So Jesus is walking up and helping. They've come to arrest him. Helping them. No, you you can stand. Who have you come for? Jesus. He goes, I told you, this is me. You're You're arrested. That's how Jesus got arrested. Okay, you've got me. And they led him away. You have to learn that if Jesus is applauding, then it doesn't matter who else likes it or not. And if Jesus is not happy, it doesn't matter who else is giving you a standing ovation. You have to learn to live for an audience of one. That's why Paul said, we make it our goal to please him. I care very little if I'm judged by anyone. I want to please him. So I'm looking through the crowd for his face. I'm, l- I'm listening for his voice. I want to do what he says. I want to go when he says go. I want to do the things that he wants me to do. <laughs> we must clearly demonstrate whose voice we are focused on when Jesus' voice is at odds with the voices around us. That's when you get to test. Everybody's saying, you should do this, you should do this. And then the Lord says, no, you go there. You say, love you all, we're going here. But that's stupid. That's not the good thing to do. Why are you doing that? Because that's where Jesus is going, and I'm sticking with him. And if you want to bring heaven to earth, you must learn this lesson. And you will face tests. Abraham had to learn this lesson. Okay. okay. God comes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you, as, look at the stars. He goes, yeah. He says, I'm going to give you that many descendants. Abraham says, great. And 25 years go by, and he still hasn't had his son. So he had a son with slave lady, and the Lord said, yeah, that is your son, but that's not what I'm talking about. So now he's 99, 98 actually, and his wife is 89. And they've lived in the desert for the most part. She's an 89-year-old desert dweller. No oil of lay for the skin. And God says to him, God says to him, Abraham, uh, next year this time, 
that lady is going to give you a son. And the Bible says Abraham faced the fact that his body was dead and that her womb was no longer functioning. And he said, Amen. I believe. And God said, It's my friend. Abraham had to learn to listen to this voice more than anything else. God took Israel into the desert. He led them by a way for three days until all their water ran out, until all their food ran out, and then he gave them manna. And he said, I led you this way to teach you this lesson. You don't live by bread alone. You're going to live by every word that comes out of my mouth. I want to teach you this lesson. Stop just getting the natural stuff. I need you. I need you. Attention up here. I need you to listen to my voice. Above all. That's why Moses wasn't allowed to take them into the promised land. God said, I want you to speak to the rock. Moses hit the rock. And God said, because you didn't consider to honor me as holy in the eyes of the Israelites, because you didn't model for the Israelites listening to my voice, you can't be the leader that takes them into the promised land. Hello. This is an important lesson. You're going to have to learn it. I'm going to have to learn it. And there are going to be tests. The crowd will be fickle. The master will be faithful. The people who were screaming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Friday, were screaming, by what authority do you do this on Saturday? And on Sunday they were saying, crucify him. The crowd is very fickle. If you live your life with a crowd, you're in trouble. John 12. Many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You want to bring the presence of king into, the, into your culture, you're going to have to learn to stop loving the praise of men. Because inevitably, the voice of the king is going to require you to do something that the crowd will not like. Inevitable. Inevitable. This is the one I esteem, says the Lord, Isaiah 60. He was humble and contrite of heart and he trembles at my word. Lesson three, working in team. The test of the harness. Woo. Working with other people means that I don't get only, I'm not the only one getting the recognition. If we win, we win as a team and everybody gets the recognition. And for individualists, that's a hard thing to do. It's a big sacrifice to give. Because i got my strengths, and don't you see my strengths, and don't you value my strengths? And then I come across people who don't have my strengths, but they have strengths in areas where I'm really weak, and I go, I think my strengths are better. Until we get into an arena where their strength is absolutely necessary, and then I'm so glad I'm in team with them. Stick close to me. I need you. I have to surrender to the benefits of the team and thereby lose some of my individual recognition or do I want to press for personal fame at the expense of the synergy of the team? You know what the Bible says, James says, <laughs> says where you find selfish ambition and vain conceit, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. The Spirit of 
God begins to stir up a unity of the Spirit. The Spirit of God works a bond of peace in a group of believers. And it's a beautiful thing when brothers dwell together in unity and there's love. Because the Holy Spirit pours out love into your hearts, which you share amongst one another. And there's nothing like the church when it works like it should. It's just beautiful. And people are caring for one another and loving one another. And then selfish ambition comes in. And selfish ambition, James says, where you find it, selfish ambition, you find disorder. Why? Because the order that the Holy Spirit was creating because I come in and I go, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not recognized enough. So I start to pull glory. I'm like, hey, look at me. And I disrupt the order that the Spirit of God, there you find disorder. I'm just, I had so much more to say, we don't have time. In my story, I write about the horses that have stayed in the traces and they are marked with the poles on the sides. You can see the marks of the pole. You can see the, the, the places where the, where the traces have chafed the horse. They have scars because they've been in battle for the king. They walk with a limp and the young horses who haven't been through the traces are looking at the old horses and they're comparing themselves and going, I'm much shinier than I don't have any of those ugly marks. I, I, I'm sure the king would rather have me. But I'm telling you something, those people who have on, undergone the training, who have learned to bear the presence of God into their generation, will see things unbelievable. But you may walk with a limp, you may have a few scars, you may not be as beautiful as you once were, but you will be very, very, very effective to a world that desperately needs people who know how to usher in the presence of the king. Let me bring this to a close. I'm absolutely convinced by the authority of the word of God that every single person in this room, God has a dream for you. And the invitation for you stands. Would you like to know him? And would you like to usher his presence into this world? That's the ultimate design. You were born for this. You were designed for this. If you say, Lord, I'd really like to be one of those people who pulls the king's carriage. I want to usher your presence in. Well then, strap in. Because the God who loves you and is desperate to see you win is going to both whisper encouragements to you and teach you lessons and then help you through a test so that that lesson is ingrained and built into you becomes first nature to you. This is who I am. This is how I operate. And you will be strangely different to the people around you because when troubles come, you begin to praise and they go, I don't think he gets it. But you actually get it more than anybody because the Lord has taught you how to deal with things. He's taught you how to respond. You bear yourself in a, with a regal setting that doesn't make sense to the people around you. And somehow the presence of God comes into a room when you come in the room. I want to be that guy. And this is the price tag on it. Do you want to be that person? Because it's available to you. Don't make light when the Lord disciplines you. And don't lose heart because it's happening. God is treating you like a child he delights in. Let's pray.
Father, there are many of us in this room who when we talk about these things, our hearts burn. We want to be people, Lord, who pull the king's carriage. Deliver us, Lord, from an easy life of inconsequence. Deliver us, Lord, from the wide open paddock where there's no responsibility in the kingdom. Deliver us, Lord, from every need met and nothing of eternity. I want to pray for every person in this room, Lord, who has been disheartened over the last two years or three years of hardship. Lord, I want to break that off because that's not what you want. I break off disheartened. I break off, Lord, discouragement. I break off, Lord, every word of negativity. The enemy has tried to slip in the bad theology that has tried to come and says it's because God hates you. It's because you're a terrible sinner. It's because uh, God has given up on you. I break all of those lies off your people. No, in Jesus' name, Lord, your word says it's because you have a dream for us and because you delight in us that you deal with us. So we invite you, Lord, in a more intimate way to come into our life and to speak with us. And I thank you, Lord, that for every person in this room who's genuinely open in their heart, that encounters would follow. Lord, would you do us the favor of when we're in the test, would you remind us, hey, this is a test. This is what I'm doing. And would you show us, Lord, how to walk out of this way with glory in our lives? Lord, you've spoken about freedom in this house and growth and new expanse. We just agree with that. Celebrate it, Lord. Do it, Lord. And do it speedily for your namesake. Make it quick, Lord, so that everybody would know God did this in this city. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.